Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is a podcast created in Los Angeles, California. This was born in 2011. Hi there. How are you? What's going on? Uh, where you are? It's nice to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in California. I've got a very interesting show for you today, an unprecedented episode in the history of this program, and certainly uh, one of the more editorially intensive shows that I've ever done. Uh, actually, I think it's the most labor-intensive production that I've ever under, uh, undertaken. Uh, what am I saying? I'm saying that I worked very hard on this, and I want you to feel sorry for me. So uh, here's the backstory. Here's what's happening. Eleanor Henderson, who has been a guest on this program before, way back in episode number 44, uh, she's a friend of the show, as they say. <laughs> and uh, she's a terrific writer. Her debut novel, 10,000 Saints, was a huge critical success and is uh, now being made into a major motion picture. And then Anna Solomon, herself a fine writer uh, and the author of the critically acclaimed novel, The Little Bride, uh, she and Eleanor are buddies. They met years ago at a writer's conference. 
Uh, I believe this was pre-publication. This was uh, pre-children or just right around the time they were starting to have kids. And uh, over the years, they have remained friends. Both, uh, as I've mentioned, have published books. Both have had babies. And uh, as an outgrowth of these experiences, they conceived the idea for an anthology involving birth stories, uh, the result of which is now available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. The book is called Labor Day, True Birth Stories from Today's Best Women Writers. Uh, It also happens to be the perfect Mother's Day gift, by the way. Uh, Mother's Day is coming up on May 11th. So uh, today you're going to hear from uh, many of the book's contributors. I conducted these interviews in a single day, in a single sitting, consecutively. Which uh, I think uh, gave me some idea of what the physical experience of childbirth is like. It was exhausting. It was painful. It was awkward. Uh, I almost wet my pants. But it was ultimately very life-affirming and sort of cosmically invigorating, as you might imagine that it would be. So uh, we're going to work our way through multiple conversations. You know, they're not all an hour long. It's going to be one show, uh, about 10 guests, the first of whom is the aforementioned Anna Solomon, co-editor of the anthology. You'll hear me talk with her, uh, and then I'll talk to Eleanor Henderson, and then I'm going to have some conversations with some of the uh, fine female writers whose birth stories are featured in this book. And, you know, as you're going to hear, these stories run the gamut. Everything from uh, hilarious white-knuckled insanity to unbelievable acceptance of incredible physical discomfort to uh, heartbreaking tragedy. It's all represented, and I hope you enjoy hearing from these ladies as much as I did. So here we go. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, let's get things started with Anna Solomon, co-editor of the new anthology entitled Labor Day. It's an anthology of birth stories. It's um, something that hasn't been done before. Um, we, Eleanor Henderson and I, many years ago now, this has been a long process. Um, I had just had my first baby. She was pregnant with her first. She wanted to know, you know, what was it like? What was the birth experience like? And even though, you know, you can find a million how-to guides out there, she couldn't find the kinds of details she wanted, the kinds of stories she wanted. And um, she asked me and a bunch of other friends to, to, to share them. And I wound up sort of running with it. I, I realized how much I had to say and tell. Um, and I wound up talking, writing a lot about actually my doctor, this crazy doctor I had at the time. And, um, and when we, we were reading it together and we, we were like, wow, we need more of these. We need to gather these. We need to make these available to other women um, and so that's sort of how it began, and it and it just grew from there. Um, Wait, and this did not exist previously, because I feel like there's, I mean, there's so much available, but no. I one... know. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it. I'm just, I'm surprised that there hasn't been something like this done, but just maybe not done in quite the way that you wanted it done. Yeah. Well, we were surprised by it too, and it's funny. There is, you know, you can find sort of Ina May. Um, who's the famous midwife. She has her Ina May's Natural Guide to Childbirth, I think it's called. And in there, there are a lot of, of sort of testimonials, I would call them, more than stories, and a lot of women who um, write about their experiences. But it's all, they're all, quote, natural childbirth in that in, you know, nobody's having C-sections. There are no epidurals. 
there's a clear bent, there's a dogma in it. Um, I know for myself, when I was taking prenatal yoga classes, my, the yoga teacher at the end of the class, she would read stories from this book. She would read sort of excerpts. And it was meant, of course, to be probably relaxing or empowering. And I found it so stressful because I would be lying there, you know, and I would be thinking, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not going to be able to like, you know, have an ecstatic natural birth like these women. So I actually felt this huge amount of pressure from a book like that because it felt like there was only one way to really do it, quote, right. Um, and then, of course, there are lots of guides. There are millions of them. I mean, 30 years ago, um, what to expect when you're expecting was first published, which now seems sort of like it's been around forever. But there wasn't much like that at that point. And of course, since then, there's been a million books published like that. You can find a ton. Um, but they're still not, you know, those are, those are, again, they're more how-to manuals. This kind of birth industry has grown up around them, um, very focused on planning for birth. But in terms of actually having stories um, where women are reflecting on their birth experience um, and sharing not just sort of the physical details, but also the emotional and psychological ones, there wasn't anything like that out there that we could find. All right. Well, it's going to be, I'm getting ready to talk uh, and people are going to be able to hear. Uh, I'm getting ready to talk to several of the book's contributors. So <clears throat> I think that's a good primer. And uh, I'm, okay. now, I'm now going to bear down and prepare for this experience. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Don't but, push too hard. Yeah, You'll be okay. I'm going to try. I'm just going to remember my, to breathe. I'm going to turn my mic down and just do Lamaze breathing while I listen to these stories. <laughs> uh, Anna, thank you so much uh, for taking a few minutes to talk and to introduce this thing. And uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking interest in it. We're really, really excited. Okay, guys, there's Anna Solomon, one of the co-editors of the Labor Day Anthology. She and her husband live in uh, Rhode Island with their uh, two beautiful children. And uh, now I'm going to talk to the other editor of the anthology, Eleanor Henderson, author of the novel 10,000 Saints. Uh, she lives in Ithaca, New York, uh, where she teaches at the Ithaca College. Is it called the Ithaca College or is it just Ithaca College? I think it's just Ithaca College, which isn't the easiest college to pronounce. Uh, but anyway, Eleanor Henderson, co-editor of this anthology, uh, accomplished author, lives in Ithaca with her husband and two sons. Here she is. This is Eleanor. It's been very different. Um, you know, neither Anna nor I had ever done anything like this before. We're pretty comfortable writing fiction and teaching fiction and didn't really think this was uh, our, our book to do. You know, we thought there might be other people for him. This is much better suited. Um, but I've learned to really um, enjoy the work that we've done together. For one thing, it's a real joy to have a co-editor. Anybody is ever considering editing an anthology, that's our first role is you to co-editor because yeah, it would have been a lonely process otherwise, I think. Well, yeah, you have some – I always think – I think like I'm a big fan of group mind and like having like more than yeah. one – you know, because people are so stretched and tired and yeah, that's usually the way I find people. So when you're making these kinds of careful editorial decisions or – big strategic, right. strategic decisions. It's always nice to like have somebody else there. If for no other reason than if things go terribly wrong, you can share the blame with them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We've done some of that, but you know, for the most part, we just sort of kept each other on track and I, I don't know that either one of us would have been able to keep the steam up. Okay. Or the enthusiasm up. Well, and, yeah. then, and then what about getting the book into print? Like you can, you know, you conceive of the book and you know, you find that it, it fits this niche that, that it hasn't really been filled and, um, you know, but then what do you do? You right. take, you take it out. Did you guys go out to publishers through your agents or? 
We did, yeah. We weren't really sure how to put together a nonfiction proposal, so you know, it took us a long time just to kind of get get it together. Um, and we had been soliciting essays from you know friends and um, you know writers that we admired for a long time, like years actually. And you know, at the same time, we were also tending to babies and that kind of thing, and so that ended up helping to make things take longer. But we ended up um, putting together a proposal with the help of our agents. And luckily, we already had agents we were working with on our fiction. And they took on the project. And um, we put together a proposal that included an introduction that Anna and I wrote together and uh, five of the essays that had come in. And oh, okay, so you reached <laughs> out You reached out and got the essays ahead of time. And then... We did. Yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing as far as that went, and we probably spent too much time get, getting the essays. We actually had 12 essays turned in before we even decided, you know, that we were ready to send out the proposal, and we had about 12 commitments from other writers at that point. Um, but it did give us the advantage of being able to select you know, five really strong essays to include in the proposal, and I'm sure that they were persuasive. Was there an auction for this thing? Like, was that, I mean, like what, is a, what is an anthology like this? What's the market for it out there? I guess. Well, you know, our our agents were skeptical, and a lot of people in publishing warned us that it would be a difficult sell. And so Anna and I just sort of quietly kept telling each other, but this is a really good idea. There's nothing like this. And, you know, our contributors were really enthusiastic about the idea, too. So we just sort of insisted that it was going to work. And it ended up um, not officially going to auction, I guess, but four publishers um, put in bids. And so, you know, it wasn't the kind of auction where, you know, the, the numbers could keep staggering up and up based on each other's. But four publishers put in bids and two of them were very competitive and we ended up taking the largest one from FSG. So it, we were really happily surprised. That's awesome. And so how does this, I mean, yeah. how did the nuts and bolts of this work when you have all these different authors? Like, do the authors right. in an anthology work gratis just to be included or do you, do they get like a one-time payment or do they get like a cut if this thing sells? I don't know. If I, yeah. We we offered um, payment when we approached authors. You know, we said we don't even have a publisher yet, but you know, if we're lucky enough to have one, we intend to pay contributors as as well as we can. And that was important to us that we pay authors for their time, and um, we are glad to be able to to follow through on that and pay them well. And um, so so they did get a one time payment, um, which Anna and I just you know wrote out of the advance that we got. And so they've now been paid, and uh, and that probably helped to bring in a few extra writers at the end of our process. Wow! And uh, and and yeah, so it's been quite an experience getting to work with these 28 other writers who have you know individual personalities and styles. And well, this is exciting. I uh, I'm excited to talk to all these uh, ladies about their birth stories, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes to. Uh, talk with me and get uh, like the foundation set for what is about to come. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brad, for, for bravely taking on these stories. Okay, there you go. That's Eleanor Henderson. My next guest is Ariel Greenberg. Uh, she's the co-author with Rachel Zucker of the nonfiction book Home Birth, a poemic. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and she's also the author of the poetry collections My Kafka Century and Given, uh, as well as the chapbooks Shake Her, and Farther Down, Songs from the Allergy Trials. She's done other stuff, too. She's done a lot of stuff. Uh, she lives with her family uh, in a small town in rural Maine. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Arielle Greenberg. 
there was healthy at home. Yeah, we were both totally great, um, and it really sealed. Uh, I was, you know, I was already, you know, pretty excited about having a home birth, but I, I, you know, I had never had a baby, so what did I know? Um, and that that experience really um, convinced me that it had been, you know, the best choice for us because had we been in a hospital, absolutely, it would have been a C-section because nobody would let you go that long in a hospital because in a hospital, of course, the longer you go after your water breaks, the higher the risk of infection because you're in a hospital and there's all these germs around, but at home in your own, among your own germs, there's really no risk of infection. Um, so I was fine. We were great and she was really healthy and I felt fantastic. I felt, you know, like I'd run a ultra marathon afterwards, but I felt like really hardcore about it. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was pumped. <laughs> oh, and then, uh, the second child, you lost the second child. And so then, yeah, my second child was um, totally healthy, normal pregnancy, bopping along. And then at 31 weeks, um, he'd been moving, you know, since 16 weeks or so. We'd had an ultrasound at 21 or 22 weeks. He was fine. It was a boy. And then at 31 weeks, we were actually packing up to come to Maine from Illinois to kind of have like a birth vacation that we'd planned because home birth was um, the midwives we wanted to use in Illinois were illegal. We decided not to try to do that again. And we were coming to Maine where there's a lot more home birth midwife options and better situations. So we'd made this plan. We'd rented this house. And then we were like in the midst of packing. We were going to go three weeks later when I was at the end of my fall teaching term. And at 31 weeks, right after Thanksgiving, I just stopped feeling movement. Um, and so, you know, over the course of a few days, uh, you know, realized that yes, in fact, he was no longer moving and went in for an ultrasound and found out that he had died in utero and, um, made the decision to come to Maine anyway and, um, wait for him to be born naturally so I could have him at home as well. So I ended up carrying him for two and a half weeks after he died, um, waiting for him to be born because because you don't know because there's no way to start a labor you know when usually as much as far as they know like babies usually are what triggers labor for mothers not always but usually and so when a baby dies they're not really sure scientists aren't really sure what triggers the labor process so you just have to kind of be patient Um, and very few people choose to wait you know most people choose to get induced and just have the baby right away so there's not a lot of statistics out there on it um, but that's what I chose. I'm so sorry about that. That's a, that's a heavy experience. I'm sure you know. it was, but it ended up being, um, an enormous, uh, gift of clarity and, um, you know, kind of refocusing one's priorities to go through something like that. And I have to say that the time we spent waiting for him to be born was like, it was really, really brutal in some ways, but it was also, I think kind of an incredible healing um, process for me because I had nothing else to do but kind of think about it and work through it. Um, so by the time he actually was born, I felt really emotionally prepared in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, it was, I'm, I was really glad I did it. Although, yeah, it was definitely really difficult too. Well, and you said it was a 31 weeks that he stopped moving. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I forget how many, it's like 40 something weeks when you carry a baby to full term, right? Right. So he was right. So I was, I mean, I was, I was, I had him on December 17th and, um, I was due beginning of February. Okay. So, so so that like, and that was a natural process. 
Yeah, the him coming. Yeah, it was a very quick, easy birth. Um, once he decided, once whatever. I mean, he didn't decide, but um, once my labor started, we did like for two and a half weeks. I did acupuncture and I took herbs and I did all these kind of natural protocols to get things moving. But in the end, it just took two and a half weeks for things to get started. And then once birth started, it was very swift and um, fine, smooth. I had him also at, at home in, in the birthing tub with midwives. And that was also really amazing and important that we were surrounded by so much um, care and in such an intimate setting. I think like one of the reasons I made the choice was because it seemed so harsh to go through that in a hospital with, you know, fluorescent lighting and practitioners I didn't know and like nurses coming in and out of the room that just seemed like horrible to endure to me um, when I was trying to like grieve and have this baby who I knew had died. So it was really kind of beautiful, you know, to be at in this little rented home overlooking the ocean and with these midwives who came by and like after we had the baby, we just wrapped him in a little blanket and waited for the, um, the actually the uh, funeral home to come gather his body. Um, and my husband made pasta and we all sat around and like ate dinner on the couch. And <laughs> it was really, it was really humane, you know, it was really kind of incredible. And even like the person who came um, from the funeral home to take the baby, like wrapped him really carefully in a little blanket and um, everybody was just so sweet about it and uh, tender about it, which was very important. Wow. And then you made the decision to try again, which some people I think might not after going through something so emotionally difficult. Yeah, we, um, we went back and forth on it and we, uh, decided that we'd like made the space in our family for another baby, you know, kind of mentally. And so we, we thought we would want another baby, but the truth is I got pregnant by accident. Um, <laughs> before like we had were, planned to, like you were on the pill and it just happened or something. Um, we were, we, I wasn't on the pill cause, um, but I was, we were trying not to get pregnant. Yeah. Okay. We were like avoiding it <laughs> and, yeah. uh, sort of like, you know, on an extremely unlikely kind of sperm lifespan situation, you know, got pregnant. <laughs> hey, hats off to your husband for having Yeah, exactly. Sex. Exactly. I, with all my kids, actually, like my daughter, we got pregnant the first time we tried. And with my second child, the, the baby who was stillborn, that was an accidental pregnancy. And the third was also. So, um, I'm, I am apparently extremely fertile and my husband is apparently a really good shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, uh, and this, this third, this third birth, you alluded to it earlier. This was easy. This was easy. I mean, it was, a, it was another home birth in the water, but it was like totally textbook, you know, contraction started in the middle of the night. He was born by dawn, super fine. I mean, he was a little, he was two and a half weeks early. So that was the only sort of surprise. Um, while I was in labor, I went on Amazon and ordered our infant car seat cause I hadn't bought it yet. Um, <laughs> which is one of the, you know, one of the advantages to home birth, I guess, is you can do stuff like that, like get things ready around the house. Um, but yeah, very, very smooth and no drama. So, um, shocking compared to, and it was, it really was kind of shocking for me because when he was, um, you know, I sort of at the end of labor and it had been this pretty short labor and um, I it was starting to get kind of intense. And I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, if I have to do this for five more days, it's going to be hard. Like, this is getting pretty intense. 
And I heard my midwife across the room saying, like, um, get out the baby hat or, you know, like, get out, like, whatever that you need for as soon as the baby comes. And I was like, why is she saying that? The baby's not going to come that soon. But indeed, yes, he, he came that fast. And I was just so prepared for the worst sort of after. You were tough. Um, the, the, yeah. first, the first one made you tough. Uh, you it know. made me tough. It really did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So, and are you done it too? You think you're going to go back for more? Or? I think I'm done. I'm 41. Um, and I mean, I, the truth is like, I love having babies, but I'm, I've been sort of vetoed because, um, our kids are now about to turn nine and five. And my husband is like, I do not want to do the sleeplessness part again. You know, he's <laughs> like, we're finally out of the woods of the diapers and the diaper bag and the sleeplessness. And like, why would we go back to that? Right. So, yeah. Well, well, congratulations uh, on your uh, on your kids. And thank you so much <laughs> for taking uh, the time to talk with me. It's been fun. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. That's Ariel Greenberg. Uh, what a story. It's heavy. Um, I'm a little bit at a loss in terms of how to make a, a proper segue out of that. I'm glad that her uh, third child was born healthy. That's a happy ending to that story. But obviously quite a heartbreak. Uh, to lose a baby that way. So I appreciate her taking the time to talk with me. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My next guest is Sarah Jeffress. Uh, she's the author of the poetry collection Forgetting the Salt, which was published by Foothills in 2008. She lives in Ithaca, New York, with her two daughters, and uh, this is our conversation. You get this sperm, uh, they ship you a vial of this sperm, and then what do you do? You go to a doctor. Right, well, the sperm was actually shipped to a clinic that we were working with in Elmira. I suppose you could get it shipped to your house, but I don't think that's the law in New York State. I think there's different laws about where the sperm can actually go to. So you register with the clinic, um, and we were working with one in Elmira, which is close to Ithaca. And then you make sure that your clinic works with the sperm clinic. And so the clinic gets, the sperm gets sent from Virginia to that clinic. And then the nurse practitioner or the doctor watches over it until you're ready to come in and do the insemination. Okay. And so um, and what is it? It's a tiny little vial in this big, huge silver container that kind of looks um, like a grenade. Like, I'm picturing something sort of sci-fi that when you open it, like it's like yeah. dry, it's like dry ice is inside and like yeah, it smokes. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And there were several times where we had to go to the clinic and 
uh, take the sperm and go to the space called natural gas and put more dry ice in it to keep it viable. Oh, so there really was dry ice. Like I'm not even. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, you're not making that up. Totally. Okay. All right. And so then they inseminate you with like, with, I, I don't mean to be crude, but I'm picturing some sort oh, of like turkey baster type situation. Um, no, it's not crude at all. It's a, it's called intrauterine insemination. Okay. It's with a catheter. You do lay down on the table. Um, and they, uh, put the sperm through the catheter all the way up to your uterus. And then you lay there literally for an hour with your legs up and your head down. Um, and you know, I was really, um, bent on getting pregnant and thought at the time that I could sink myself through it. So I sort of started reciting poetry and singing songs and trying to, um, you know, lure the sperm towards my egg. I thought that I could <laughs> think its way. Um, I, you know, if I would have given it slippers, I would have. I just was really intent on getting that sperm to the egg and thought, you know, ridiculously that I had any power over it. Well, but you know, I, I believe in some of that. You got to give it a little, you know, you got to have a little like magical thinking going on. Yes. Yes. So, okay. You get pregnant. You've been, and you've had two babies. I've had two girls and one miscarriage. Okay. And uh, same same donor? Uh, different donors. Different um, when donor. we went to find the, when we, I finally agreed to get my partner um, to go for the idea of having another child, um, we went back and that donor had had his max of pregnancies. Oh, okay. So they, ca so they, they cap it. They cap it. So um, then we found the donor. And ironically enough, anytime my girls, uh, they're very funny and smart, but they are sometimes mischievous. And anytime they do something that's not like me, I immediately say it's a sperm donor. <laughs> so so and, like, you, and, and did you read essays for both of these donors? I did. I did. What did and, they say? So, what did they say that won you over? Like what kind of people, <laughs> what kind of people are well, the out there one, donating sperm? Right, exactly. The first one was from Spain and he was an English teacher who loved chocolate. And his favorite movie was Moonstruck. And that was, at the time, was my partner's favorite movie. But he talked about wanting um, to have women be able to have children. Like, that was important to him. And that um, he had a family member who was gay. And he wanted, um, he couldn't help his family member, but he wanted to help other women. Um, and the second donor was an architect and more philosophical uh, English donor. And he said... I had something about um, the idea of building different communities and families and how communities were stronger if you had a um, different kind of families and that the same family over and over again would weaken the community. Um, so okay. I was sort of won over by the English teacher who wrote well and talked about chocolate and the philosopher. Right. I mean, their health was important too. You know, you read their health records and their... Um, but I didn't look at pictures. You could look at pictures if you wanted to, to see what the sperm donors looked like, and I could really care less. Oh, really? So I think I would be yeah. going there. I'd be like, look, yeah. I'd be like, I want a 3D hologram. I want to see everything or video. <laughs> I was like, have they had cancer? Has their mother had cancer? Is yeah. there anyone mentally ill? Okay, no. Okay, they both know how to write. Okay, we're good. <laughs> I mean, you know, they were both really tall, and that was fine. But if they had been shorter, that would have been fine, too. Yeah. Uh, okay, so birthing. Birthing. Whew. How did that yeah. go? Did you go hospital? I had to go hospital because I had really good pregnancies until the last month, and then I had preeclampsia. Um, and so I was induced both times. Um, one of my favorite stories from my daughter, my second daughter, is that uh, she was born May 16, 2009, and 
there were um, 15 babies born between May 14th and May 16th, and she was number 15. So I was like crazy, like avocado green of all these screaming cat women giving birth around me in the labor floor, and I couldn't do it, even though it was my second one, and I was trying, and I was on a Pitocin drip. And so I sort of said, you know, I don't know if I can swear. I said, you know, piss off, like fuck this, basically. And then said, oh, we're off this floor. So I unhooked myself from the Pitocin drip, and I took my partner and my masseuse and my doula, and I said to the nurse woman, we're going to walk on the floor for a while. We're just going to walk up and down. So we walked on the labor floor, and then we left which was brilliant. And we walked up and down the hospital floors trying to induce this labor, trying to get my second daughter out. And I was like, oh, I'll go for some coffee. You know, this was like day three. And, uh, three I went days? To, yeah. I, she was, um, I was induced on Wednesday, both days, and one child was born on a Saturday and one child was born uh, on a Friday. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, <laughs> went down and got some coffee. Um, and... That's when sort of the nurse of all nurses came running down and said to me, Sarah, you know, what are you doing, you know, outside the labor and delivery floor? And I, you know, was having contractions by that point and kind of told her to leave me alone. And she said, you can't have a baby at the coffee kiosk. <laughs> and I was like, this baby will come where she wants, when she wants. And, you know, and then I would have another contraction and all these people would stare at me. <laughs> and like, were you screaming during this contraction? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Totally. Man, you're... Yeah. But you, when you <laughs> say you left, you, you didn't leave the hospital. You weren't like, I'm going No, to. I didn't leave the hospital, but I left the labor and delivery floor, which is completely... Like, you are not allowed to do that. Did you, did you take um, an epidural? I did have an epidural with both children. Yeah. See, I'm always... I'm, uh, pro, I'm pro epidural. I don't understand these people who are like, I want the pain. Take the drugs. No, take the drugs. God so, sake. you know, the nurse said to me, you know, you cannot be irresponsible. Do you want to lose this baby? And I sort of went through a contraction and said, I will not lose this baby. And she said, you have to come up on the floor. And so then I, like, went back up with her. And then, of course, my labor slowed down. Because uh, I was jealous of all these really pretty, imagined pretty women having babies really fast in like four hours or six hours. Just um, shooting them out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But finally, that was my youngest, Frida. She was named for Frida Kahlo. Uh, she came out at 3.30 in the morning. Uh, so that was kind of brilliant at wow. the end. But what I did when I got upstairs was I wrote her a letter. I sat down on the yoga ball and wrote her a letter asking her to come out. So I often say that I wrote, I wrote that one out. Oh, well, that may, I'm going to keep that in mind. Yeah, I feel like that might yeah. work. Whatever works, right? Yeah, get, when, yeah whatever once works. Once you get to that point. And then you, you mentioned that you miscarried once. Was that in between children? I or? did. No, it was first. Um, and it was very early. And it was incredibly difficult. And I um, had, I mean, I think miscarriages are difficult anywhere in the process, early, later. Um and I was doing laundry in the basement, and I just started bleeding, and I immediately knew what it was. Uh, and I started throwing up, and I uh, was terrified. Yeah. And, uh, my wife, had, my wife had three miscarriages last uh, year, so I've been through this. I'm so sorry. It's yeah. really awful. It's not fun. Yeah, and I had such a sense of the nurse. Some of the nurses said to me, you know, that um, it's really your body's way of letting go of um, cells or or cells that aren't working, or it's, you know, it's the body's way of um, letting go. And I took it to be very responsible, more that I had caused it, or that, you know, I think I might have had a fight with my partner the day before, or, you know, like, I felt very responsible, and it took a while to let go of that. 
Yeah. Um, it's weird. It's like there's a weird guilt thing. Like my let my body, yeah. my body let us down. Or, you know, there's not, but you can't. Yeah. I mean, it's just nature. What, what are you going to do? It is. It is. Well, um, I'm glad you had uh, two healthy, uh, beautiful yeah. girls. You said girls, right? Girls, yes. They're nine and five now. And, um, and I'm also glad that the second one was not born at the coffee kiosk because it's, yeah. It would, have been, it would have been um, cinematic, but I think it might have been medically difficult. Yes, exactly. You know, I will say with the first one, um, there were hours where my partner and I, this is very funny, where we were on the either side of a porta johnny squatting because I just wanted gravity to make it work. And uh, they had brought in a porta johnny if I needed to pee, and I was like, I'm not going to pee in front of you. But, you know, with labor, everything happens yeah everyone all these plans you have about not look like i had all these plans to not look at stuff and just to keep my yes. and forget it once you're in the moment it's like things are just happening <laughs> yes exactly and all privacy kind of evaporates well it's been fun talking with you and yeah uh, i, I congratulate you. you on your con contribution to this book and i uh, congr you. congratulate you on your babies and uh, hopefully maybe. you never know maybe maybe there's an, a third one uh waiting for, waiting for you down the road yeah, you know, you had um, asked me, too, about where I was, but the other thing I wanted to say is that, oh, you said you did background research, and recently I won the Saltonstall Foundation, which is a CNF uh, creative nonfiction uh, writing fellowship, um, and that came from this essay. So this essay is not one that just helped me um, become a better writer and um, help this book, but it's also helped me won other fellowships. It's, other it's fellowships. birthing new opportunities in your life. It is. <laughs> it is. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is Sarah Jeffress. If, uh, if, you ever, if ever you were wondering what it's like to go out and uh, buy some sperm on the open market, now you know. Uh, my next guest is Jane Roper. She's the author of a memoir called Double Time. It's about uh, mothering twins. And uh, I'm very excited to have her here. And I feel like we should just get going with it, don't you? You guys know the context. We're going to talk about babies and childbirth. So here she is. This is Jane Roper. I, I think it's a lot easier to go from zero to twins than it is if you already have a kid or two and then have twins. Yeah. I think that's insane because you're just like, oh, my God, this is this is nuts. I've... I know a few people who have twins and then have one child after, and you know, they're like, "Oh my God, this is so easy to have one child!" I, you know, unbelievable. But um, yeah, I mean, it was nice not to have to. We did want to have two kids, so it was nice not to have to worry about uh, when are we going to have the second, and you know, to go through it all again. But and is definitely twin, is, twin, is like the twin delivery process more fraught, or is it you know more painful to have two? I mean, I'm assuming like the the discomfort carrying around two babies as opposed to one is probably a little bit more intense late, later in the pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, um, well, it's a riskier pregnancy because there's a much higher, um, your chances of, of having a preterm labor, you know, having premature labor are higher. Your chances of having things like preeclampsia and diabetes and stuff are higher. What, what is, what is, yeah. is preeclampsia? What is that? That's, um, super high blood pressure. Okay. Um, do you watch Down, Downton Abbey? No, I, I don't. Oh, one of the characters dies because she has preeclampsia. Okay. Um, sorry, spoiler, but it was two seasons ago. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. So there are all these there are these risks, and it definitely is more uncomfortable. Not that I have anything to compare it against, but when I 
you know, during the last month, I could barely walk. It was, I was just so uncomfortable. And, um, and so then you go, then you go into labor and how long were you in, uh, in the bed? It went really fast for me. I, let's see, my water broke at around midnight and my girls were born at nine 30 and nine 37 respectively. And I most, I think more than half of women who have twins have a C-section and I didn't, um, that, you know, they, the babies have to be in just the right position and uh, all these other factors need to be in place for you to be able to have them, you know, vaginally. And it worked out, it worked out in my case, but it was, I think it was more, I, I, I don't know for sure, but my labor was so freaking painful. I mean, it just you hurt did, my mother. You didn't, you didn't take the uh, drugs? Oh, I did. I did. But even before yeah. that, like I was just. It, it all happened. It all went so fast. And you know, when when I hear other people talk about their labor, they're like, "Yeah, you know, there'd be this really intense contraction, and then I'd get a little break for a bit, and then another one would come on." After about an hour, there was no break. It was just like I, I didn't feel any sort of sense of like contraction and then rest and then contract. Like it was just like bam, wall of pain. Okay. So and eventually I want to stop you like for, for, women, okay. for women who have not yet uh, gone through childbirth, who might be considering it or hoping for it. And then for men who will never uh, go through childbirth uh, to the best of my knowledge, then yeah. what describe what a contraction feels like. And like, can you compare the pain to anything? Yeah, um, a contraction feel well, for women, like it, it feels like an, a very intense menstrual cramp. Um, it, for a man, I would like a, a man-friendly analogy be maybe like, I guess if you if you have like really bad gas or you like a stomach pain, like if you've got like a bad stomach bug going on and you've got sort of a you know abdominal cramp, maybe that's a, a good way of thinking of it. Um, depending on how you're carrying, it can be in the front of your like in your abdomen or you can feel it in the back. And I kind of felt it both places at once it was like being squeezed um I, I just remember my wife squeezing my hand when she was having contractions and like she's i've never had her squeeze my hand that hard before or since yeah <laughs> like break yeah. my fingers you know like it was intense. right yeah totally it is like an, a really intense you know and i i feel like i was kind of set up by my mom my mom was like oh you know it i don't remember it being painful i just remembering it feeling like really hard work and I was, so I was like, okay, yeah, you know, she's like, yeah, I was, I had cramp. It felt like cramps, but you know, I felt like I could do it. And so I went into it and I'm like, oh my God, I, this is much, much worse than I thought. Cause I did think I was like, maybe I can do this without drugs. Maybe I can be, you know, superwoman. But I eventually, and, and my husband was like, you know, honey, you just puked. You're like miserable, doubled over in pain <laughs> like yeah. and you've got a long way to go you're only three centimeters let's you know why don't, don't you and all the every all the staff are like you know we do offer an epidural you don't have to put yourself through this and yeah so don't be a hero yeah. i you know i, I know there's yeah. different arguments i'm sure i'm going to talk to other uh women who who went au natural but that is oh yeah yeah some courage i don't know I'm, i've i've witnessed it i'm pro epidural after witnessing it <laughs> yeah yeah it, yeah it is i mean Right. It It is one of these things where, I, you know, and even going into it, I was like, I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm going to like do what feels right. I'm not going to try to be a hero. I'm not going to try to, um, but there's this little, you know, I'm an overachiever. And I think a lot of the women who probably 
you, that you're talking to or fall into this mindset of like, we have to, we have to do the best possible thing and like do it the best possible way. Um, which, you know, is not always necessarily the I'm, best I'm, I'm for you. About, I'm all about being mediocre. I want to just be average yeah, yeah. and epidural. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well so, and you know. And I want to ask you too, because uh, this is another thing that I feel like comes up a lot. And maybe it's just because I live in L.A. But it feels mm-hmm. like a lot of women these days are like opting, like like they want the C-section. Um, to either like yeah. to protect their lady parts or whatever it is. But um did did you do you have any regrets about delivering naturally or vaginally or, or do you were you glad you no. did it that way? Yeah, I'm totally glad I did it that way. I never like the idea of getting a C, of a C-section was pretty unappealing to me. I I don't know. I just like I, I don't know. Somebody cutting. I think it was part of it was I watched a video of a C-section happening, oh, man. and I was like, oh yeah, yuck. No, they're cutting into her body. Like I don't I don't want that. But also I knew the you know, it takes longer to recover. And I was like, with two babies, I don't want to like be off my feet any longer than I have to be. Um, otherwise I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I, yeah, I, I didn't feel any, and they any shot, urge for that. And they shot right out of you seven minutes apart after nine hours of labor. That sounds pretty good, right? I mean, and I said, yeah. I don't mean to, I don't even mean to make it sound too easy. They didn't like just shoot right out of you, but you know what I mean? Yeah, the second one did. Oh my God. Like the, Honestly, the first one, getting my daughter Elsa out was, you know, pretty, I was pushing for like two hours. I mean, it really was a long process and they almost had to go to C-section. But once she was born, my other daughter, Cleo, it was literally like, like a cork. <laughs> it was just like, whoop, there she goes. <laughs> Elsa did all the work. Elsa cleared the way. Totally. Yeah. Uh, which is fitting. It fits her personality. Well, that's uh that's a good story. I'm, uh, I'm happy for you. Two, two healthy babies. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a big day in anyone's life. I would imagine. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it, it was, uh, all things considered, it went pretty well and they, they came out and, and I survived and they survived and, uh, you know, they're seven years old now. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Jane. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Jane Roper, ladies and gentlemen, mother of twins. I fear twins, uh, like not out in the world, but just like now that I have one child, if we have another uh, pregnancy and it's successful, uh, what if it's twins or triplets? Knock on wood. Uh, my next guest is Sarah Strickley. Uh, I'm pleased to have her here. She is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship. She lives in Cincinnati with her husband uh, and their daughter, Simone. So this here, ladies and gentlemen, is Sarah strictly so how did that go down like you're pregnant you're at 36 weeks you're thinking i've got an, i've got a ways to go here and then you go into labor yeah uh well i had i had a series of midwives tell me that it couldn't possibly be labor um and just to chill out and take a hot bath and take a few tylenol um and it, it would be fine um but uh you know uh, labor just kept revving and so uh, eventually I had to decide that the midwife on call was wrong and that it really was labor um, and it, go to the hospital. You made that call. Uh, it was, I was in conversation with uh, the midwife on call, and that one um, kept saying, no, don't go to the hospital, uh, you know, take a bath. And so I waited, actually waited for her shift to end so that I could get the next midwife. 
um, and then argued with her, and she eventually conceded that, yeah, I should, I should go. Yeah, you know um, your body. You got to go. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Pr- that, that sounds great that you, uh, you know, you had the good sense to listen to your body. I guess you, you what are you going to do? It's not like you can ignore it when the pain is like that intense. You know, like yeah, even, even was, if even if you wanted to, the contractions are going to tell you what's going on. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know what labor would feel like, but I was pretty sure this was it. Yeah, I didn't know what else it could be. Um, and if it wasn't labor, then it wasn't. It was something not good. Yeah. So uh, I went to the hospital, but then the hospital staff—they weren't ready to accept that it was labor either. Um, so I was stuck in triage for a long time, um, trying to convince them that this was really labor. Um, and they had me walk around the hospital for an hour. <laughs> Um, before they uh, would let me into a triage room. Um, What's a triage room? There's like where you're kind of like a holding pen? Yeah, it's kind of like a holding pen um, where they sort out all of your insurance stuff and um, your doctor meets you there or your midwife meets you there and you do a quick exam and make sure you're in the right place at the right time. Um, But for whatever reason, um, they were convinced that I I shouldn't be there yet, um, so they didn't want to admit me. Um, And I... Later found out that um, it was a very busy day at the hospital, and they may just not have had a room prepared for me. Sure. Um, So when I finally did get a a triage room, uh, it had not been cleaned up from the last woman who was there, um, and there was a computer glitch that was telling them that I was this woman, even though she had been admitted to one of the labor rooms by that point. Um, So there were some, like, technical problems establishing my identity, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> things like that. Just what um, you just what you want when you're going through contractions is just yeah. like it's just like uh, what do you call it? Like the minutia of like um, God, the word is escaping me. What do you call it? Business stuff, office stuff, protocol. Oh yeah, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, yeah. It was a bureaucratic hospital purgatory type scenario, um, but all of that pressure on, on questioning uh, my sense of what was going on actually worked to convince me that. Um, I, it, that it wasn't labor once, once the real pain of pushing hit, uh, <laughs> is once, once that came, I became convinced that we should just go home and try this another time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at that point it was, you know, it was always too late to turn back, but they had done such a job on my brain by that point that I was convinced that we could just stop and. I'll just put my pants back on and go home, and we can do this another time. Oh, and so did you have you? You've mentioned the midwife. Did you have? Did you go like midwife and doctor, like the combined? Yeah, I thought best of both worlds. Um, I was trying to escape a hyper medicalized birth in Houston, Texas. Um, the hospital I was initially slated to deliver at had a C-section rate of about fifty percent. Um, and I wanted to avoid going under the knife if I could, and I didn't feel like 50-50 odds were very good. Um, so that's one of the reasons I went ahead with a, uh, a move, a big move across country um, while super pregnant. Um, By yourself, again, or were you, was your partner with you or your husband with you? He, he, was, he came uh, about a month after I got here. Um, so there was a time where it was just me up here, um, he was finishing a PhD, so uh, uh, he needed to do that, and then uh, came up to join me. So he was he was there for the for the birth, um, but we had only just you know we thought we had more time, so right. we didn't have uh, the nursery painted. We we weren't ready. 
Um, but are you ever you, really ready? Let's be. No, yeah. no, that's yeah. the, that's the truth. You can't. There's nothing you can really do to prepare. So, were you scared? Were you thinking, "Oh my God, this baby's coming a month early"? Like, were you asking questions about its health and is this okay? And you know, because you don't, I you know, going through it myself, I don't remember asking those questions. Like, what if the baby comes a month early? Like, how how soon is too soon? And you know, those kinds of things. Like, yeah, I asked a lot of questions uh, of the midwives and. They were of the opinion that um, with modern technology, if the baby came, you know, when I first started uh, having uh, labor, uh, you know, super early, um, that it would be fine. You know, they said, think of these celebrities that have C-sections, you know, (laughs) two months before the baby is due. Um, You know, with modern technology, there's really not uh, a lot to worry about. Um, So I, I wasn't that worried about the baby's, health, um, probably not as much as I should have been, um, because as it turns out, you know, those last few weeks are really important, um, for developing the the cognitive skills that they need to coordinate, um, breathing and and eating, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how, so how long was the baby in the NICU? We were really fortunate in that she was only there for about a week. Um, and, uh, we were a strange case in that we were readmit. They sent us home, and then we realized there were some problems, and so we went back, and so we had to be quarantined from the babies who had never left the hospital um, because we were an infection risk. Um, so we had our own private room, which is rare in the NICU, and we were also in a situation where the baby was in a bassinet and not an incubator. Um, she didn't have to be tube-fed, um, but looking around, we could see babies who are in much more dire straits, and it was uh, heartbreaking to witness some of those family scenes. Oh my God! Yeah, I was just saying, I was going to say, like the uh, the NICU in a in a maternity ward is not a uh, that's a scary place. Yeah, yeah, it, and it's it's um this particular NICU uh, was interesting in that um, it was made to look like a forest. And so uh, it felt very much like a kind of medical wilderness to me, Um, like the hubs around which all the incubators would be kind of huddled were made to look like big oak trees. Um, And so there was a kind of, there was an effort to make it a soothing place. Um, But at the same time, there are all these medical blips and noises and um, it's unmistakably a hospital. Right. There's no way you can, you can't decorate your way out of this, right? <laughs> right. There's no amount of cute, cute wallpaper that can erase that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it all worked out. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. You know, well, thank you. you're, I think you're the yeah. only, you're the only person I talked to who had a preterm baby, but, um, I'm glad it worked. You know, I, I, I guess, uh, I, I didn't know too much about, uh, the mechanics of that, but, uh, if we have another kid, then and and he or she comes a month early. Like I won't completely panic, though I will panic a little bit, at least internally. Guess, <laughs> you know, also don't move to Cincinnati. Maybe okay. that's the moral of the story. Okay, I will do that. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Brad. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Sarah Strictly. Great talking with her. Uh, Cincinnati. Who knew that it was home to so many, uh, you know, premature births. Did you guys hear that part? I don't know if that got you know edited out, but Cincinnati, high rate of uh, premature births. I was unaware of that. My next guest is Heidi Julevitz, uh, who has been a guest on this program before, episode 62. We had a good conversation. 
you should listen to that by signing up for premium. I'm just saying. Uh, Heidi is the author of four novels, most recently uh, The Vanishers. And uh, she is also a founding editor of The Believer magazine. So very excited uh, to be speaking with her. Oh, I should also mention uh, that she is the co-editor of a a book, uh, I think it's an anthology, called Women in Clothes, uh, Why We Wear What We Wear, available this year. Uh, She co-edited that with Leanne Shapton and Sheila Hetty. So this is Heidi Julevitz. Yeah, this is Heidi Julevitz. (laughs) Did I mention that this is Heidi Julevitz? This is her. This is she right here. It was a little bit more of a free birth situation than my husband and I had signed up for. You know, we really did not want to do it by ourselves. Um, We had hired people, professionals, and paid them to be here, but uh, sometimes that stuff doesn't quite work out as okay. you want it to. So, wait a minute. Yeah, wait a minute. we were so you have two... we were pretty much alone. We were alone. You know, it was it was supposed to be a home birth, so to some degree, we signed up to not have a lot of people around us, but we were completely, totally alone, just the two of us. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's sort of my fault. It's totally my fault. I, uh, I, the midwife came over. And she was just really stressing me out. And she's like doing her accounts. She's figuring out her her billing situation on my dining room table. Oh God! And uh, and she also is just she's not like a you know I don't really need a lot of new age people around me. But I realized that like when you're giving birth, it's nice to have at least one. And she's definitely not that. She's just not a. I thought, so that was in the job, I thought that was in the job description for midwives. Yeah, you would think. And this is why I picked her because I was like, oh, you're so not what I would think for a midwife. You know, she's just this kind of caustic, no nonsense New Yorker, you know, and I found that refreshing until I was in labor. And then I didn't find it so refreshing. And uh, someone else is in labor in Brooklyn, which, you know, from where I stand at 115th and Broadway is like basically driving to Boston, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and, but it was Christmas night, so there wasn't a lot of traffic. And so I said, just go, 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 go to that other woman who is further along, as she said, thereby indicating that, you know, it being of course a competition that she was beating me. And so the midwife was going to go to her instead, which she did with my blessing. And then I was happily alone. Um, But then things just went faster than we thought they would. And my husband then was calling the midwife frantically and was just like, I kind of think, I kind of think we need you. I think things are picking up. I think it's happening really soon. And uh, anyways, you know, he'd call her and she'd be like, I'm on 53rd street. I'm on 72nd street. I'm on, you know, she was driving here as fast as she could. And uh, she quite literally like rang the bell. My husband buzzed her in. She basically walked in the door, and I had my last contraction, and she caught the baby. Holy so, okay, so stop. So she was here yeah. for the important part. She got her check. She did her QuickBooks on your kitchen table. No, 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 no. Here's the craziest thing. She didn't ever charge me. I never paid her the second installment. I think she felt guilty well, that she wasn't here. That's how, that makes sense, but she should be there if she's going to get paid. That's her job. That's true. That's true. That's true. So, okay, you had a, you have two kids. I have two. And the second one, we just heard the story of this home birth, this, you know. Yeah. This white knuckled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't even imagine like, you know, so but you had the first child at a hospital. We did, you know, but part of the impetus for doing it at home 
is because of our hospital experience the first time, which granted was in Maine. We were in Maine and, uh, I should preface this by saying that most of the people in rural Maine where we were living, um, including the doctors, have home births because the hospitals are so uh, – it's not that the hospitals are bad. It's just like not a vast improvement over your home often. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's and it's a very much of the culture up there. The culture is most people – I don't want to say most, I don't have any facts at my fingertips, but most of the people I know up there end up just giving birth at home. And so, um, so we did not do that the first time out because, uh, oh, you know, we just felt a little nervous about it. Obviously we hadn't been through it before. We didn't know what was entailed. And so we were like, you know, we will go to the hospital. And then we went to this hospital and, Afterwards, Ben was just like, uh, "We should have just done this in our barn." You know what I mean? It was just, you know, there was, there was, uh, um, you know, like the blood pressure cuff didn't work, and the monitor didn't work. Like nothing worked, and um, and the yeah, baby, there was the some other graf- graphic the details that I'll spare you. But the baby was fine. Everything was fine. It was all great and fine. But in the end, you know, we really could have just stayed in our homes and spared ourselves the 45-minute trip to the hospital. But, but, um, I mean, I've, I've been through this. This is an int- like a childbirth is a, is a significant event medically, right? I mean, like, but, but maybe- it can be. And you know, I mean, what, what one thing I will say that's great about Maine hospitals, which is not great about New York hospitals, is that they. Um, they don't care if you want to be in labor for five days, they're like, go for it. You know, totally up to you. They'll just leave you and you can just be in labor for as long as you want. No one's pressuring you. A lot of doctors up there, cause they're pretty old school. will still let you have a breech birth baby, you know, in New York, not so much. What, what is Here's that? Much That's where the baby comes out feet first? Breech. Yeah. Or butt first. Okay. Oof. There's a bunch of different kinds of breech. I know. Exactly. Hurts for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, <sure. laughs> I'm clenching as I hear that. <laughs> Holy Jesus. But, um, but yeah, so in some ways, main, the main hospital situation, you know, it, it basically was like having a home birth there because everyone left us alone. The doctor didn't really show up. We, She was like reading a mystery novel in the hallway. And the doula that I'd hired, who was a home birth midwife, kind of ran the show, you know? Oh, and we were in a supply closet also because they didn't have a room for us. So they put us in a supply closet. So people were like, the only people who came in were the people who were coming in to find something in the supply closet. Oh <laughs> um, but all told, it was actually, you know, you you didn't have a lot of pressure from anybody to do anything you didn't want to do. If, if you were having just a smooth, you know, painful, but not otherwise um, dramatically eventful birth, right? Um and uh, whereas in New York, you know, it's it's a little tougher here. It's okay. tougher to find a hospital where, um, you know, first of all, you go to these hospitals. I went in, I did go because, you know, I got an amnio because I was 40 when I had my second kid. And uh, and so I did, you know, I mean, I had a home birth, but I also had an amnio, you know, I'm one of those people. What, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> the test? Like you tested the kid? Yeah, you know, they stick the needle into your stomach and they suck out some amniotic fluid and then they tell you if your kid is uh has like a chromosomal deficiency or something like that sure yeah um those tests which, are nerve-wracking uh, they're a little nerve-wracking yeah exactly and what's so funny is that you know with my first kid i was up in maine and i tried to find a doctor to give me an amnio and they're all just like 
what are you talking about? Like, we don't do that. You know, we don't do those up here. And I did find a guy, one guy who said, well, I just do it blind. He does a blind amnio, meaning he'll just like stick the needle in. And I was like, well, what if you hit the baby? You know, because most people like in New York will do it with a ultrasound right. machine, right? At the same time. And he just said, if you if you prick the baby, it knows to move away. That was his great quote. <laughs> it's probably true, actually. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, know? Yeah. I mean, I certainly do not mean to belittle any of these doctors up in Maine because, in a strange way, if I had to choose, I would probably, if I had to choose between giving birth in a Maine hospital or a New York hospital, I would choose a Maine hospital, um, you know, if everything was going well. So, um, at any rate, so, uh, yeah, where was I? I don't even remember what I was talking about. Well, amnios, babies. Oh, yeah. Well, in Maine, they don't even give amnios because, again, culturally, it's just very different up there. People don't, you know, when I ask someone if they would do an amnio, they said, well, I'll do one, but I never do them. And he said, and besides, if you found, what would you do with the information? And I was like, well, I would decide whether or not to terminate the pregnancy if it was bad news, you know, and this was really kind of uh, shocking to him. I don't think because he was pro-life necessarily more just like people just don't get prenatal testing up there. They just don't do it. Don't you do know, it. Yeah. it's just like, yeah, it's like you get what you get, you know, um, you don't interfere. Uh, so, yeah. So I'm all about the tests. I want to know, you know, I think you got to, I want to, I deal, want to know too. I want to deal with information. I don't want to, I don't want mis- I couldn't even handle not knowing what the gender was. I was like, must know the gender. Yeah. Must know, you yeah, know, me too. No, me too. believe me. I've had, yeah. I, I mean, just, so uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was going to say, I was just having that conversation with, uh, another, uh, contributor to this anthology. And I was like, you know, there's enough surprises in parenthood. I need to know these things in advance. I'm, I'm exactly, I'm not, it's not ruining any part of my process to have this information ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. I have a great, a friend of mine who is a very blunt, hilarious person. Someone was giving her shit because she found out the sex of her kid. And, oh, that's the other, yeah. <laughs> one of the women, one of these women up in Maine, I one time asked her, she was pregnant, and I said, oh, do you know what you're having? And she just looked at me and smiled. She said, a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and this other friend of mine who someone was giving shit uh, because she'd found out the sex of her child, someone was like, well, I wanted it. I didn't find out the sex because I wanted it to be a surprise. And my friend was like, when I found out, it was still a surprise. <laughs> it's not like it wasn't a surprise when I found out at 20 weeks. <laughs> yeah, there's so many surprises in life. Like, just like, you know, uh, you know, but to each their own. I don't want to poo-poo it too much because some people, they like No. That. Yeah, go do your thing. I, you, you know, have. I think also if I had another kid, maybe I wouldn't find out. You know, I've done, I've done the knowing, you know, route. Maybe next time I would try not knowing. Are you going to have another kid? No, no, two is enough. Two's good. good. I don't know. Maybe, you know what? Honestly, if I had, if I didn't have the job I had, if I didn't have the life I had, I would have more kids. I actually love having them, but, you know, they're really expensive. You just should see the check I just wrote today for months of tuition, multiple overlapping tuitions. You know, I just, I, I, yeah, we can't afford to have more. But, you know, if I was really rich, yeah, I probably would have some more kids. Sure, sure. Well, and and just one last question because it's uh it's going to bother me if I don't ask it. Like when you're doing this home birth, uh, and you have yeah. the doula or the midwife or whatever, and then uh, Ben is there. 
uh, I'm assuming just overseeing everything masterfully. <laughs> yes, with, naturally. With a pulse of what, like just 70 beats a minute, just, you know. Ex- oh, it was amazing, actually. <laughs> kind of a- astonishing. Someone should have been monitoring him. <laughs> Fuck the fetus. Someone should have been monitoring Ben and be like, oh my God, so, how yeah. did you remain so calm? Uh, did, what, did he? Was he really calm? Oh my God, he was making jokes the whole time. I mean, not because he wasn't taking it seriously, but because he knew that would make me happy, right, right. you know? Yeah, I was preternaturally calm. I mean, like, not to toot my own horn, but I was like surprised at myself because I think I was so intense and I, I wanted things to go well. And so I knew that if I was calm, that would help things go well. So it's amazing what kind of like calm you can conjure. Maybe we were tapping, yeah, into, maybe we yeah. were tapping into the same sort of thing. Maybe. Now, did you have, was yours like super dramatic? Did you have something dramatic happen? I mean, not that it's not always dramatic, but yeah, yeah, we had were, a, were uh, you tested? Were your nerves yes, tested? Yes, yes. And I talked about this, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was, it was the middle of the night and we had, my wa- my wife's water had broken spectacularly. <laughs> right. That's uh, so awesome. There, yeah, it was, we were at a restaurant. It was super awesome in the summer in like a sundress and like there was like, oh. Oh, no. Yeah, I had to get wow. like a, I had to get a towel out of the trunk of our car. It was it was exceptional and unusually it's, cinematic. It's nice that you had a towel in the trunk of your car. Was it really covered in like it was uh, monkey wrench grease and stuff, or I was mean, it, it was there no, for that reason? No, it, no, yeah, we we always carry a towel in the back of the car in case her water breaks. I mean, we were not pre- <laughs> we were not prepared in the least, and it was just like she was just like, honey, like I think something. I think if I like stand up, this is going to get ugly and. Sure enough. So I went up to the counter and I was like, do you guys have towels? And like this, like, you know, totally like disinterested teenage girl hands me like a small cocktail napkin. (laughs) And so I'm like, all right, I got to go. And like, you know, it was this big production. But because of that, the baby uh, was not, there was not a lot of uh, amniotic fluid left. So when they they induced, the contraction started to come and there wasn't like a cushion. Yeah, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a cushion, so uh, my daughter's heartbeat started to sink, and so right. like, they had turned the lights out, and they were like, "Go to bed." And so we were like twenty minutes of just kind of lying there in the dark, and then like I felt the nurse come in, and she was like looking at a monitor, and she like walked out quickly, and then like the doors flew open, and like twelve people came in. And, oh my god! And it was like they had to flush the uterus with like saline solution to like you know mimic uh, amniotic fluid and. Like they gave my wife adrenaline, so she started to like shake in the bed, and it was. Oh like, my they, god! They put an oxygen oh mask. God. Yeah, I mean, it was in super intense, and I was so. Adrenal- and that's when you pulled the jokes out. Yeah, that's when that- you were like, "And so, have you heard someone about that?" <laughs> but I was totally calm from the waist up, and then the adrenaline. I'm amazed. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, it was. It wasn't because I'm some sort of like, you know, heroically calm person. It was because I was so scared of showing fear to her because I didn't want her to be more scared. And right, I, and exactly. I, and I was just shocked, but uh, from the yeah. from the waist down, my legs were just, yeah. were shaking violently, and from the waist up, I was like completely placid. It's very strange. Wow, wow, yeah. You know, I mean, it is interesting. You look back on those moments, and you kind of can't imagine how you reacted as you did. You know, yeah. I there mean, must it, be. It's, it's bi- yeah, there must be something getting triggered somewhere that makes you. Be calm when you absolutely should not be. (laughs) I think it's called survival instinct. (laughs) Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it all. I'm glad it all worked out. I mean, you know, that's yeah. You too. Yeah. Exactly. And and uh, you know, it's nice to talk to you. I mean, we we I've had you on the show before, so we chatted a while back. But uh, I know, I know. No, it's really great to talk to you. And uh, well, thank you, thank you for doing this. Okay, that's Heidi Julevitz. Always great talking to her. 
and uh, I'm glad that everything worked out. That home birth, I can't believe that story. I'm trying to, you know, I put myself in those situations. Being there as the husband, alone, as the overseer. <laughs> so uh, my hat's off to Ben Marcus, Heidi's husband, for his uh, ninja calm. My next guest, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, Rachel Jameson Webster. She's the author of the poetry collection September, which was published by Triquarterly Books in 2013. And uh, she teaches at Northwestern University in Chicago. This is Rachel Jamison Webster. So I had, like a lot of women, especially with their first child, I had this extended pre-labor um, where I'd have con- I had contractions on and off for like three weeks, and I would take walks and just feel um, kind of hyper present. Like I would be so aware of nature and my surroundings, but also other women. And I remember just having this like incredible immediacy in my exchanges with women at that time and with friends. And um, and then sort of a flip of that happened where while I was in labor, I felt very connected to other women. But I had um, right before the time I was supposed to push, I I had this like sort of set of technicolor flashes and visions that had to do with violation and pain. And it was like, it might have been me being too much in my head, but it was like I could not push through the pain because I was suddenly so aware of how much pain had been inflicted so what, sexually. What happened? Do you, I mean, was, was there an episode that you distinctly remembered or had you? No, no, it wasn't that personal. It was more like knowing that things had happened to me, to my friends, to my mother, to women. I mean, which may so- sound a little implausible, but it was like almost a, a connection to sexual pain in that moment <laughs> that I had to push through in order to give birth. And that was very, um, it kind of shut me down. My mom was also with me um, in the room. And I think I was, I think that she had a more dramatic experience that I don't even know the details of in that way than I did. But I, you mean with abuse or with just, yeah, in some way, but I really don't know. I just think that there was a, it was like I was connected to ancestors there and what? connected to pain. I totally get that. It's like the pain yeah. of ancestors and the connectivity and, you know, that makes sense to me. And I think that that's, that's real. I tend to believe that's totally real. It was. And it was this weird thing. So the labor just stopped. It totally halted. And luckily, um, I was very sort of stubborn and insistent. And so was Richard, my partner, and um, just kept kind of buying me time to rest at that point. Whereas a lot of, in a lot of situations, I think I would have, they would have just taken me and I would have had a C-section, but my daughter was totally steady, healthy. And somehow we kind of got moved to another room because the heat had also gone off in my room. So it was like 50 degrees. It was crazy. And, uh, and somehow I was able to rest for a few hours and, um, the woman who came back in and finally delivered my daughter talked me through what I could do, gave me Pitocin. I basically did sit-ups to get her out, and I pushed for five hours to get her out finally. And um, and so she was born, um, and it was 
it was so hard. I mean, it was such a long labor, but it was also, I felt like it was also this healing of those questions of sexuality because I was in charge of the birth. Um, so it did feel very empowering to me. And later I talked to one of the head midwives who does a lot of work around the world. And she said that, um, women in third world countries who really do die of childbirth, often their labor stops right where mine did. So the sort of mortal fear that came up was real. I mean, it's it's real to them in a way that it doesn't have to be in our culture, luckily. But um, but that was interesting. She basically said, like, worldwide, that's a very common place for labor to start. Which is where? I mean, to stop before pushing. So you're, like, fully dilated. You're technically totally ready to have the baby, but to, like, the final push. Right. Um which is kind of like being active with the pain rather than passive. Yeah. That's a shift that I don't know if I knew how to make it. Okay. So wait, and you're no epidural? No. Oh my God. Okay. So how intense is that pain? I mean, that's, that's so intense. And that was, it's sort of funny to me afterwards. Like, why did I need to know what that was? You know, um, and I really wondered, well, it, what if this is some other form of, um, you know, what if this isn't healthy to want to bring this pain on just to know what it is? But but in any case, that's what I chose, and I'm glad because I did, I don't know, I did fully experience it consciously, but it was more, it was much more painful than I think we're prepared to have you ever Have you ever experienced any kind of pain comparable physically? No. And after I had my daughter, I had all these weird uh, dental things happen where my gums receded and I had a dentist who, this is also kind of strange, but I had to have like four surgeries on my gums pretty and on my teeth pretty soon after she was born. And he didn't use any anesthesia and I was like oh this is nothing I had had a natural childbirth like I do feel like I got a couple years out of it where everything was like oh that's nothing you know now I'm I'm wimpy again do you remember the pain um you know what I remembered it well enough for a while and they do say that like that can form like a natural birth control and I know in a lot of cultures that are closer to the earth people would have their children like four years apart because that would be the safest way to be able to care for them and um i think it probably takes a few years to forget it um and i was always told oh you don't remember it afterwards it just passes so quickly but that wasn't true for me i'm I'm in pain just just thinking about it Well, that's so kind. You must have been present at your daughter's birth. I was there, that's for sure. And I was awake. Like, that was a big thing for me is I wanted to Mm -hmm. be, I wanted to make sure that, like, I didn't miss it and that I wasn't wasn't so, like, locked up in my head that, like, I missed the moment. And I don't think I did. You know, I think I I made it through and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll do it again. Like, do you have, uh, you you mentioned your partner, like, and you you spoke of uh, him in the past tense. He actually passed away. I mean, we wanted to have more children 
and loved having a child together. I mean, to me, even though there was pain of labor, like that whole chapter in my life was just sacred and amazing. And um, we definitely wanted more children. And he got sick soon after Adele was born. So by the time he was two, he he got ALS, um, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a horrible disease. And um, it's deteriorating and it's a progressive paralysis. So he was getting sick. So I went from almost, I I nursed her till she was two and then I was caring for him. Oh my God. And he was terminally ill for two years, almost two years. So, yeah. So it's been um, really sad because I did want more children. I love uh, you know, I actually loved the whole experience. I loved being pregnant, and I loved being a mom. Um, so, yeah, it's um, – and, you know, he was a real hero. He's sort of – he's in this essay for sure, but I, I could have written a whole essay about his role because he also – you know, it was like a 30-hour labor um, and he never fell asleep. He was so present with me, and I was hanging off of him. He was... He was terrified. Come on, I, I was awake, too. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way I was sleeping <laughs> in that room. I know. I mean, it, yeah, but that's not always the case. Like, it's hard to stay awake to that intensity and to, like, I don't know. It's a really special thing, you know, when the father can be there and be totally present to what's going on. Because, yeah, it is. It's terrifying, and it's, like, gory, and ugh, it's mysterious. It's so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, that you've been through a lot. My God. To have yeah, I've been and... through way too much, actually. But you lately. sound, you sound uh, positive. You don't sound defeated. Uh, oh, thanks. It takes a lot of energy not, you know, to stay positive, but um, thank you. Yeah, I, I was very lucky to sort of love him and know him and have a child with him and um i also spent a couple years writing i wrote a memoir about that experience that i'm just now ready to finish and so it was one of those things where you're just glad that you have these practices as a writer because i really needed it to just clear you know tell the story so that i could hopefully not only live that story yeah, well, it's a it's a hell of a story, and uh, I congratulate you on your uh, beautiful daughter. It is a daughter. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I wish you well. You and, too. And who, who Thanks. Knows, who knows what's down the road? Like maybe, uh, who knows? You know, could there, yeah. could there be another child possibly? Uh, there that, could. I would love it. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. Okay, Rachel. Well, listen. Thanks for talking. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brad. Okay, Rachel Jamison Webster, ladies and gentlemen, keep an eye out for her memoir. Uh, when that comes out, I think she's got a good one happening. It's my hunch. Uh, my next guest is Christina Enriquez, the uh, author of the forthcoming novel, The Book of Unknown Americans, as well as the novel, The World in Half, and uh, the short story collection, Come Together, Fall Apart. Uh, very pleased to be talking here with Christina. And uh, she lives in Chicago with her husband, her daughter, and her son. This is Christina Enriquez. <laughs> Then when I like was pregnant, every time I could never feel like completely happy about it. I was always just so nervous 
about keeping the baby. Yeah, like how do you, you know, deal with I, that? Because like oh, we're, I mean, I'm almost dreading. Like you know, it, hopefully we get pregnant and we can try again. But I'm almost dreading it because I'm like, oh my god, like I'll be on pins and needles the whole time. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And you, and in my head, I would set up these sort of mile markers. Like, okay, if I can get to this week, then that's further than I had ever gotten before when I had miscarried. So maybe that will be a good thing, you know. But then on the other hand, you feel like you're still nervous because. Then if you've gotten that far and you still miscarry, then it could be even worse than the other times. And then, you know, you're telling yourself, like, the 12-week mark and then the 20-week mark, if I can get to that. And then you have to – and then I would start, like, shutting off any stories about people's, like, problems with delivering, you know. And I would have to, like, bypass that show on TLC, like, Birth Story or Baby Story or whatever it's called. Yeah, I can't do You know, that. like, I just – I can't – it was, like – everything started to feel like a sign and like I was jinxing things and I got very superstitious about like, you know, oh, I wore these socks the last time I went to the doctor when I had that miscarriage. So these are my unlucky socks and I can never wear them again. Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> like, I'm with you every step of the way. I'd be doing this everything thing. was like infused in that way. Like the whole world was about like, like either losing a baby or keeping a baby. It was like sort of divided that way for me. But what's the, uh, what's the, what's the real, I mean, I know that it, things can always go wrong in life, so there's no, re, you're never really safe, but I mean, what's the marker that you have to pass? Is it 12 weeks? They say 12 weeks and that then you're pretty, you know, like it's going to be pretty viable. Like you're in good shape if you've gotten to the 12 week mark. And then of course there was the thing of like, Oh, I'm not going to tell anybody because if I tell anybody and then we lose it, then we have to tell everybody that we lost it. So, you know, then the other thing is you're walking around with like this huge secret. And it's like the only thing you can think about and the rest of the world is going on, you know, but I'm horrible at keeping secrets. See, we told people every single time and every single time had to go back. We just kept thinking like, Oh, this can't happen again. This can't happen again. Right. You know? And I'm just, I'm really horrible at keeping a secret. I'll tell anybody anything. It seems like, uh, clearly since I'm doing this show, but, um, this and we could never figure out what was going on either because, and that's the other frustrating thing is I felt like my body had been very like reliable my whole life. Like I never had problems. I almost never get sick. Like I just didn't understand. And I wasn't, you know, this was, I was like early thirties when this was happening and before 30, the first time. Um, so you were so good. It just seemed like, you know, just weird. Yeah, well, it's just, un, you know, I guess it's unlucky and it's just nature doing its thing. But um, to kind of finish my whole spiel about secrets, like I think this next time, should we uh, get, get pregnant? I'm not telling a soul. That's my new yeah. – see, that's my superstitious mind. Like this is – Yeah, exactly. I, right? I can't, yeah. can't tell anybody. Whatever I got to do, I'm just going to have to like cloister myself, stop doing the podcast, <laughs> and just not speak um, to prevent myself from, you know, saying something. But – uh, you eventually did have, you have two healthy babies. Two awesome, healthy babies, best kids in the world, yeah. Okay, yeah. naturally, uh, like birth in a hospital, birth in a manger? Where were birth these? in a hospital, yes. I'm, um, I think I'm one of the few people maybe in the book who was very like pro-epidural. It seemed like as uh, I was reading the no, essays, I've, a lot of people wanted to do natural. Yeah, no. See, <laughs> always I, my, confounded me. No, my wife too. My wife is uh, not, you know, she doesn't love medical stuff, uh, like broadly speaking. So like there was never, right. there was never any question that we were going to do the epidural. And, uh, you know, that's a lot. It's a, it's an intense process. So, uh, 
you know, if women, women who can go through that pain and just face it down and that's what they need, like, you know, hats off to them. Exactly. I mean, in my essay, it was funny. There's a, like a few weeks, I was so concerned the whole pregnancy with keeping the baby that I didn't prepare that much about like actually having the baby until like two weeks before I was due. It dawned on me that I was going to have this baby. And, uh, I saw like a book in a bookstore about like mindful birthing and it had an exercise where you have to like hold an ice cube in your hand for like one minute, you know, without dropping it. And just like it, the idea was to like train your thoughts away from the sensation of the, how cold the ice cube was and like the water dripping down your arm and stuff like that. And I like, read this in horror because I was like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> and that's just an ice cube. And I was telling my husband about it and he was like, oh, that should be easy. Let's try it. So we got home. And I gave him one ice cube, and I took an ice cube. We stood across the kitchen counter from each other, and I was like, okay, go. And we picked them up, and, like, after 12 seconds, I dropped the ice cube. <laughs> I was like, ah! You know, and he held it for the full minute, and he put it down, and he was like, no big deal. But it was like, there's no way I could not have an epidural. I can't yeah. hold an ice for more than 12 seconds. What so. was it? Did, was it really that uncomfortable to hold an ice cube? I haven't done this. It's you know. just like burning. Like it was just so cold. I don't know. I'm just not good at these things. So do I just you, knew that in advance. So do you have, yeah, a, low, do you have a low, do you have a low pain tolerance? I guess. I mean, I guess that's the moral of the story. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you can't hold an ice cube, <laughs> I don't know what no. to tell you. <laughs> I know. Right. Uh, it's not so good. But so. Uh, you know, the actual process of birthing, were they similar? Like was one baby harder than the other? Um, they're actually very, pretty similar. I mean, I'm pretty, I was pretty textbook after, you know, all the craziness of getting pregnant, which was anything but textbook. Then the actual labor and delivery was like, I mean, my daughter was born on her due date, you know, and like I had contractions and I went to the hospital and my water broke and, you know, everything went sort of according to modern plans. Okay, here's a question uh, for you. This daughter who was born on her due date, is she like type A punctual? Like Oh yeah. She is. Yeah. Interesting. She's very type A. Yeah. <laughs> but she's the oldest too, so I don't know if that's part of it. Yeah. She's sort of like that. But then yeah, my son uh was four days late. And but beyond that, I mean the actual labor and delivery was pretty much the same. It was the same hospital, which is about two blocks from our house. Perfect. Very convenient. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, wait, I when mean, you when you started having contractions, you just walked over to the hospital. Um, no. Let's see. For for our son, I woke up and I, like I woke up and I coughed in the like at six thirty in the morning, and like something came out between my legs, and I was like, "What is that? Like, did I just pee maybe on myself? <laughs> I don't know." Which seemed possible since I was four days overdue. Uh, and I hadn't, you know, done any Kegel exercises or anything. So, uh, well, wait, wait, but then wait. I went. Let me, to let me the ask you before, just because I want to make sure that my uh, my listeners, especially my male listeners, are like, <laughs> right? What's a Kegel <laughs> exercise? What are we What are we talking about? You have to like tighten the muscles that like stop you from going to the bathroom. Those muscles, you like tighten them, and your OB will tell you during your pregnancy to like practice tightening them. My OB would always say like when I was stopped at a red light to see if I could like tighten it and like hold it for the duration of the red light. But how do you, like you just kind of, how do you tighten it? <laughs> how do you do a Kegel? Like, I've never, I've know. never practiced. I don't any, know. I've I don't, never, I don't think a man can do it. I guess, I guess, I don't know. You just like, these are lady muscles. Please. 
yeah, just squeeze. But it's supposed to help so that when you're eventually pushing out the baby, your yeah. muscles in that area are like stronger. Right. Well, there's um, always like, there's always, you know, when you get close to delivery, there's always like the worry that like the woman's going to start pooping during delivery. And you know, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that I was not aware of. Like, you know, you go into this right. and it's like, you know, she may poop and I'm like, I don't care. Like, I just want the baby to be healthy. Yeah. Uh, she yeah. Did, by the way, she did not poop. I got to tell my, you know, I'm not going to, I got to give my wife credit for not pooping. In delivery. <laughs> did, did, she, did she throw up earlier? Like during? No, no. Wait. She was, I think she was so terrified. Wow. Like she was just, nothing was coming out except the baby. <laughs> yeah. That's um, good. Yeah. I mean, it, well, you know, it worked out. There was some like sort of bar that they brought out during the pushing where she was like, it was like a pull-up bar. Oh. I don't know what there's some sort of apparatus. Does that help her get some leverage kind of maybe? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. She pulled herself up and, uh, you know, there was, yeah. a, they used that <laughs> suction cup thing to get the baby out the, on the head. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. It was insane. I was just like. I don't know. I was on the moon. I felt like that whole time, but I was trying really hard to stay calm because I wanted my wife to look up at me and just see like serenity. And so, yeah, the beaming face. Of yes. Love like, it, or yeah. just like, you know, like we got this, don't worry. Cause if she saw me freaking out, then I felt like she would freak out. Um, right. and there was one episode in the middle of the night during labor for us that was like intense where all these doctors rushed in and there was like procedures and, Oh, you know, yeah. So like it was like uh, and it wasn't it, it didn't end up being a huge deal, but it was like the amniotic fluid was not there and the baby was getting stressed and it's heartbeat, you know, uh, yeah, I, should, right. I should just say my daughter. But yeah, so all these doctors rushed in and it was like really scary, even though it wasn't necessarily serious. And uh, I continued to try to be calm just because that was the only thing I could think of to do, you know, because I have no pur- right. I have no purpose other than to stand there and be calm. <laughs> And yeah. tr- and try not to say something offensive, but uh, I remember distinctly that when this happened, from the waist up, I was totally still and calm, and from the waist down, I had so much adrenaline that my legs were were literally just like drumming. They were just like, oh wow, sh- yeah, like shaking violently. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, I I mean just to relive it, I mean even probably makes you feel like all worked up. I mean it does to me sometimes. I think about it, I get emotional still. Yeah. yeah. It's a big deal having a baby. I mean, it's an intense experience, and there's nothing quite like it. Do you, I remember my husband was, was, like, standing next to me, and then, you know, the baby's crowning, and then the nurse is, like, encouraging him to come around and look. And the expression on his face was just like, <laughs> he was so <laughs> torn about whether he wanted to do that or not. Just you know, go. part of him wanted to because it's, like, a miracle. And then the other part of him was like, this is going to be gross. <laughs> but he did it. He yeah. totally did it both times, but I just remember looking at his face and he was just like, <laughs> conflicted. You know, I've uh, I'm all I'm I'm pro. Just just get in there and and you know look at it. It's you know it's life and you know, yeah. And it's not going to happen too many times in your life unless you're, you know. I guess there's some people who have, you know, a dozen babies, but few fewer and fewer of those these days. But yeah, it's incredible. No, I remember after our. Uh, after our son was born, you know, and after everything that we had sort of felt like we had gone through to get him, you know, he came out and I was, and I was just saying to the doctor, is he okay? Is he okay? That's like all I wanted to know. Uh, and, you know, the doctor was like, he's fine. He's great. And my husband just sat down on a chair and just started sobbing. Um, and that's one of my, like, most distinct memories from that labor and delivery, which oh. is sort of all that emotion kind of rushing over us. Yeah. I mean, I can't even like, I'm getting, uh, emotional just hearing that because I, I've imagined if we ever do finally get to have a second baby, like the, the, with Evan, my daughter, like 
I was really emotional, but I was just like high. I remember I, I didn't cry. Right. I was just really exactly. Like, I was high, and I was like standing over her, and uh, you know, I was very concerned about where she was, and I was following her, the nurses around, every, you know, like, um, just keeping an eye on her. But I think if we wind up having a second child, it's going to be more emotional just because of the struggles, you know, that we've had yeah. to go through. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that it worked out for you and it's been fun talking with you. And, uh, you know, I, there's no third child on the way. There's nothing happening. You're done. No, now we're done. You know, and part of it is because of how hard it was. I sort of feel like I don't want to be cosmically greedy. Yeah. You know, I I feel like one for us. (laughs) Yeah. Like we got like our awesome daughter, our awesome son, like, you know, and they're both healthy and just like the greatest things. And I, I don't know. I feel like we have been, you know, blessed. And so we have what we are supposed to have. Wow. Well, it's been fun talking with you. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay. That is Christina Enriquez. It's good to talk to her. It's good to hear that story uh, for me. I like to hear, like, uh, you know, stories where it's, it's bad, but then it ultimately works out, if you know what I mean. Uh, my final guest. We have made it to the end, ladies and gentlemen. If you've stuck with me this entire time, I commend you for your stamina and your perseverance, and I have saved a a good one for the grand finale. Amy Brill uh, is the final guest. Uh, Her first novel, The Movement of Stars, was published by Riverhead last year. And uh, I also have somebody else here. Uh, Can you say hi, sweetie? Hi. This is my daughter, Evan. Do you have a good day today? Yes. Do you want a little brother, or do you want a little sister? I want both. You want both? (laughs) But if you had to pick one, because what if there's only one? Which one would you pick, a little brother or a little sister? Or I don't know what one would come out. Yeah, I don't know either. But either one would be good, right? Uh-huh. What do you think we should... If you had a little sister, what would you want to name her? Um, I love you. Oh, that's sweet. What about if you had a little brother, what would you want to name him? Zachary. Zachary? Where did you get that name from? Okay. Well, can you say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. Can you say bye to everybody? Bye. All right, guys. Uh, This is Amy Brill, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of being out of control, which one of your girls was born in a car? Oh, that would be uh, the latter. She was born on November 3rd, 2011 on 8th Avenue somewhere between Prospect Avenue and, I don't know, like, I'm going to say 13th Street. In Brooklyn. <laughs> in Brooklyn, uh, from where, from the place I speak to you now. Uh, yeah, she she came into the world on fire. Very tenacious little person. So what happened? Um, you're you're driving happened? to the hospital? So we're driving. So, you know, I, I got to backtrack slightly and tell you that my first daughter took 40 torturous hours to arrive and you know nobody prepares you for the birth what it's like to actually go into labor and have a baby and so it just it took so long and it was so so frightening to me just to have to be in pain and not to know what to do and to be freaking out and to be exhausted that you know by the time I was pregnant you know with my second child I really uh, just wanted it to hopefully you know be faster and not to be so torturous and not to be so frightening (laughs) And um, I didn't do a lot of, of planning, and I didn't do a lot of preparation. And when things got rolling, I was a little bit 
I was a little bit more prepared to sort of roll with it. Like I understood a little bit more about just being in the experience and kind of letting the experience happen, knowing that maybe, you know, if I just went, let it, let it happen, let myself experience it, it would, it would probably turn out better than trying to fight away from it, you know, fight the pain, push it away. Cause that obviously doesn't work. And it just happened. Everything went so much faster that by the time we kind of stumbled out of here and into the car, and mind you, I'm in a space, you know, like the size of a Frisbee because I'm in our back seat between the car seats. And uh, my husband is driving and I had this just last great contraction and I, you know, my water hadn't broken and we just didn't know that we were at the very end because I hadn't gotten to the very end so wait, without how, wait, a lot of drugs the okay, first time. Okay. So did, first of all, did you do epidural the first pregnancy? I did. I did epidural at hour like 35. Oh, okay. So So you went through it and then you were finally... But I was still, but even, yeah, but like at that point, because my labor, it just wasn't progressing. Like I was kind of stuck and nothing was happening. And I'd been awake the whole time, of course, because, you know, miscontrol. I'd been like, I'm going to, you know, push this baby out. (laughs) And so I just, I mean, it's a good thing I had the epidural at that point because I think I would have ended up just so exhausted that I wouldn't have been able to do the work of, of childbirth the first time around. So that was a good decision for me. And then the second time around, I didn't, I wasn't planning to have an epidural or not have an epidural, although it seemed to me after my first experience that natural childbirth was probably highly overrated. (laughs) Um, But even though I wasn't planning to address it in any medical way, you know, I sort of labored in, in our back room, you know, with my husband throughout the night. And I mean, mind you, my, our three, then three year old daughter was asleep in her room the whole time. And so it just, things sort of sped up and, oh my God, we were using an iPod, an iPad, like an iPad app, you know, to time the contractions, which I just can't recommend. Just don't do that. Like the swiping and the start and the stop. I mean, I don't know how many times I forgot to press the buttons. So by the time I sort of thought, okay, it's probably time to get into like a more medicalized environment um, than our bedroom, I just didn't realize how close I was to the end because I hadn't gotten that close the so, first time without. So what kind of car do you guys have? Well, we have a Subaru, 2002 Subaru uh, Outback, um, like compact kind of hatchback. And, um, you know, it's it's not the biggest car in the world. But, but it's, it, got, it's, it's got a back. You can at least lie down on the. No, 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 no. I was, between, I was sitting in the back seat between the two car seats. Okay, so wait. Let's zero in here. You're in the passenger seat on the way to the hospital. No, 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 I'm in the back seat. My husband is driving in the front seat. I'm in the back seat of our car between the the toddler car seat and the base of the infant car seat for the infant who is about to arrive, although I didn't know that at the time. But thankfully, I told my husband, thinking ahead, as planners are wont to do, I had told him to put the, the actual car seat for the new baby in the trunk and just leave the base. So there was like a kind of a hump, like where the base is, and then and then this little tiny space, which is what my butt was in, and then the my daughter's like kind of big, you know, like roadster car seat, and um, so I was sitting up in the back seat, and then we had this. I got in the car and in between contractions, and then we had this brief New York debate about should we take the 
should we take Flatbush Avenue to the Brooklyn Bridge or should <laughs> we take the BQE to the Battery Tunnel? Because that's what you do when you're from New York. You talk about how to go yeah, to no. NYU you when you're in, in Brooklyn. LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, in New York University Hospital, it's, you know, across the East River and we're in Brooklyn. And so we have this conversation and as it's, as we're debating, I, I feel another contraction going on. I'm like, whatever, just go, 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 go. So he, he peels out and uh, my next contraction comes as we're going around the corner. I feel this contraction kind of peak and I'm having this like weird internal kind of thrumming, like a drum beating from inside my body. And then I felt this incredible rush of like warm pressure. And I put my hands down and there was the head. I, I sort of, I was wearing these soft yoga pants. Everyone wants to know about the logistics. So I'm just going <laughs> to put it out there. So I like, I guess I pulled my pants. I don't really remember, but I felt, I put my hands down and I felt the head of the baby, like literally, like she just, she just came out, like the head of the baby just came out. And I said, oh my God, the head is out. You know, go, what is go, your, wait, go to what is, your, what is your husband doing? So my husband is driving, right? And he's, I mean, I did, I, I'm sure I said, oh my God, you know, or something to that effect. And he's driving and he's going, are you, uh, what, what's happening? Are you okay? Are you all right? What's going on? And, you know, the baby at this point, the actual body of the baby is, you know, kind of, she just slips out into my arms. I didn't even know it was a girl at this point. So I should say like the baby, she just, her body just slid out into my hands. I caught her and I pulled her up to my breast. I mean, I guess I moved, I was wearing a jacket. I, I took my jacket off at some point or I moved it. I don't really know. And I pulled my shirt down and, you know, she's making that infant sound. So my husband is hearing this. So he's driving. He's going, is everything okay? Are, is the baby breathing? Are you okay? Is everything okay? And then he's going, hold on, hold on back there. Hold on. And I think he's being sort of, you know, metaphorical, like, hold on, you two, everything will be okay. But he was like, hold on to something. I am going through all these red lights right now on 8th Avenue. <laughs> it's five o'clock in the morning. And he's, which is really what I remember is the, the, the sort of steely gray sky of the November kind of dawn and the, the lights, those, the sort of milky orange of the street lamps kind of flashing by outside, like one after the other. And the baby's crying and she's on me and I'm looking, I'm looking up her nose and it looks fine. And, and I had this incredible blissed out feeling because, you know, after you, you know, have a baby, you get this incredible chemical like rush. I mean, all these great hormones flood your body and you feel this incredible bliss and the oxytocin is flowing. But really it was also this moment of like, oh, right. Like I just had a baby in my car, in the backseat of my car. And like, <laughs> I actually, I'm, I'm fine. Like, we're fine. I can't you know, believe this. So I like, you're sitting, yeah. I'm like the mechanics of it. You're sitting on the seat. Like, I was sitting on the seat. I guess I might, I guess I must've been kind of, I guess I slid down somewhat so that I had kind of a space, but my hands in. Yeah. I mean, I caught her. I caught her when she, she kind of flew out and I caught her. Like my husband, for, for months afterwards, people would say, but who delivered the baby? I said, well, well, she delivered herself. I mean, she just came out. And one day my husband put his hand on my shoulder and he said, honey, you delivered the baby. <laughs> well, I guess you, you did. I mean, technically you did. You're the yes, first person. Technically to... I did. So, and then you pull up to the hospital and the, the emergency room entrance and you're just. Well, like... you know, we, we actually pulled up. We went to, we'd never been to our local hospital. We pulled up to what we thought was the main entrance, on, you know, here in, in our neighborhood. And, um. He goes running in, and apparently he said to the woman at the front desk, you know, uh, my, my wife, my wife just had a baby in the, in the backseat of our car, and she goes, 
oh, y- y'all got to go around to the ambulance entrance on like 6th Street. <laughs> so we kept oh running God. back out again. Back in the car, we had another little conversation, like, should you go up, should he go up the wrong way street, or should we go all the way around the block? And he's like, you know what? I'm going to go around the block. I'm like, okay, honey. So he goes around the block. He pulls into the ambulance bay. He goes inside. He repeats the performance. And this time, you know, the EMTs come running out with a gurney and a warm blanket, and my husband sticks his, you know, head in. He pulls up my pants, and I, like, got to accepted the warm blanket, and I wrapped her up, and I stepped out of the car. And I got on the gurney, and they rolled us in. Then they made him go and park the car. What about the cord and all the business? Yeah, they did that all inside the the hospital, which is amazing because, you know, I didn't know for, like, at least 10 minutes that I had had a baby girl. Like, I just didn't know. I didn't even think to check until we were lying there together, and they're all buzzing around. I mean, it suddenly turns into this, like, manic hive where all these people are hooking. They're trying to hook up an IV. They're trying to get me out of my clothes. The one, some guy is like, they're trying to thread this like IV tube through my clothes and they're, they're all confused. And finally this wise guy looks at me and he says, are you ever going to wear these clothes again? And I was like, I will never wear these clothes again. So he like cuts me out of my, my clothes that are all soaked with all kinds of stuff. And, um, and we're just hanging out like me and my, my baby girl, we're just hanging out. She's like hanging out on my chest and she was full term. You know, there were no issues. Thank God. I mean, she was fine. I was fine. Um, and they, you know, they did everything that you need to do, placenta, cord, weight, you know, eyes, like whatever they do. Um, Unbelievable. And, and I answered, you know, 700 questions in five minutes and, uh, and there we were and we were fine. We were all fine. Yeah. I, uh, when you sell it, when you eventually sell that Subaru, I feel like you should put a plaque in the back seat so that whoever whoever winds up with it can know what happened in there. But I know. Well, Subarus, they last forever, so I'm hoping we can actually hold on to it long enough to pass it along yeah. to to the to the little one when she comes of age because, really, that car belongs to her now. I was going to say, that would be fun to be like, yeah, I was born in this car. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that was, the, that was the culmination. I mean, the day that she was born, I emailed my editor of this book that I had been working on kind of my whole adult life that I had sent out right when I got pregnant with her that had been purchased and edited and sold in all these other countries all during the time that I was pregnant. So when she was born, I emailed my editor and I said, oh, you know, she's here. She was born in the backseat of the car, but everything's fine. Everything's okay. And she wrote back and she said, you know, if anybody could have a baby in the backseat of her car, it's you. And furthermore, double congratulations. I sent your book to copy edits today. Like, you're done. So I kind of, it was like, that was the culmination of this incredible journey for me. So really, I had a I had a baby and a book, you know, almost at the same time. That sounds perfect. Two years, two, two one year, two births. Wow. Well, yeah. That's I don't think that I'm going to hear a story that tops that. I can't imagine that I will, but you never know. No way. You should save me for last. I please. still I still have like five five calls left, so we'll see. But it's been super. <laughs> it's been super fun. I'm glad it all worked out. You know, uh, I feel like a Subaru birth could be a fraught experience, but it sounds like you had the best possible. Uh, situation. It was, and and Brad, if you decide to have another baby, you know, get the to the hospital. I will. I trust me. I'm taking notes. <laughs> it was great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Amy Brill. That's a crazy story. I can't get over that one. I'll never be able to get over that one. Uh, go get Labor Day. Go get the book. What's it called? What's the full name? Hang on a second. It's called Labor Day, True Birth Stories from Today's Best Women Writers, edited by Eleanor Henderson and Anna Solomon. Thanks to those guys for helping me set this up. Thanks to all of 
uh, the talented female authors that I spoke with for this program. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, Labor Day, uh, the book, has a website. It is labordaybook.com. There's also a, a Twitter feed. And that is what? Uh, the handle is at Labor Day Stories, and I believe there's also a Facebook page. So go get the book. Get it for your mom for Mother's Day. Get it for your wife if she's expecting. Get it for your wife if you're secretly trying to get her pregnant without her knowing it. No, don't do that. You should consult her first. Um, what else is there to say? I'm so burnt out. Not that, you know, I'm very glad that I did, <laughs> that I did this, but you have to realize, very edit-intensive. A lot of emotional conversations, trying not to say anything offensive. I feel like I'm in, uh, you know, very explicitly female territory, very much out of my element, even though I am a father, even though I have witnessed the the miracle of childbirth in person. I'm not an obstetrician. I'm just a guy. I don't know what's going on. But uh, I like talking to those ladies, Uh, you know, hearing the various stories, hearing stories that hit close to home, uh, but also hearing how you kind of persevere through that or persevere through whatever it is that happens to uh, fall in your path. So I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, I hope that uh, if you're, you know, if you're a mom or if you're a prospective mom or a parent or something, hopefully that was helpful or interesting or terrifying. Please remember that D.H. Lawrence died of tuberculosis and that Joseph Cornell lived with his mother his entire life. Uh, I forgot to thank Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. Uh, It's the best way to listen to this program and to access the full archives. If you want to hear conversations uh, with folks like Eleanor Henderson or Heidi Julevitz from the archives, go get the app, download it. It's free, and then you can sign up for premium right there in the app. That gives you access to everything, and it only costs... Uh, two bucks a month, or if you prefer, uh, five bucks for six months of access, or nine dollars for a full year. Please go get the app, is what I'm saying, and support this program. I would greatly appreciate that. All right, uh, and then go get Labor Day the book. I think I've covered every base. I think I've done it. I think I have successfully given birth to this episode. <laughs>